All right, so if you don't know, we're going uh, through the book of Genesis right now, especially committed to the first 11 chapters rolling through it. And so that's where we're at today. We're at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. That's what we're going to make it through. Fall of man. I'm going to pray for it before we get going. Uh, ask yourself this question. Do you believe that when we open together God's Word, this is the, what the Scripture calls itself, God breathed. Breathed out by God, meaning it's His breath. It's the, the holy breath of God coming out of these words. And so what that means is we open the Word and read it in a moment and talk through what's there and uncover the truth. As we do that, there's ways that God... I mean, think about what God does. Just like in Job, when He talks about it, He uses the same storm to, to punish one and help another and, and for the grass to grow. And just goes through all these different reasons He does the same storm. In the same way, you got God's Word Going forward here, we're reading God's Word. We're talking over God's Word. And, and this has power to save souls in the room, to encourage the, the downtrodden in the room, to rebuke those who have gone astray. It has all this power to do this. So how about we ask that God, through His Word this morning, would speak so that that happens all across the room. Let's pray. God, thank You that we can open Your Word now. And God, we ask you to speak, please. Lord, as we read this, this glorious truth, this awesome truth that you've given us, as we uncover these things, God, as you lead, please, please lead us, God. And I pray that you would speak to us, God. Every person here, God, to have a holy moment, Lord, where they hear from you, they're moved by you, God, as, as, as we open your word. God, we pray for the salvation of those who don't know You, for the encouragement of those who are Yours, for the calling back of those who have gone astray. God, I pray that You would do all that, Lord, through Your Word this morning, by Your Spirit. God, unless You help us, all that we do is in vain. So we long for Your help, Lord. Thank You for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're at Genesis chapter 3. So I want to talk to you for just a second about just how important this chapter is. This is an extremely important chapter in the Bible. It's of major importance. Uh, if you took this chapter out of the Bible, the Bible would not make sense. You'd be wondering how to go from good, good, and very good to murder in Genesis 4 and all the way out. Murder, destruction, pain, death. And even what we see today in this world, if we didn't have Genesis 3, we'd be wondering, wow, what happened? So Genesis 3 is of major importance. I want you to remember that uh, Genesis 2, 3, and 4 is a section. You remember us talking about that? Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that this is actually a section. And really, chapter 2, 3, and 4, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, that's a section about the fall of man. And if you look at Genesis 2, it's setting the plot. It's setting it up. It's showing you how good God has been to man and woman. And it sets the scene for what we're about to read about today. This is the peak of the mountain in this section of Scripture from Genesis 2 through 4. This is the peak. This, this is it right here. This is an important place in the Scriptures. Genesis 2.25 leads us... I'm just going to read this. Genesis 2.25. And they were both naked the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So it leaves us in this state of, of great innocence and bliss. Okay, And then you get six verses into Genesis chapter 3, and it ends in verse 7 here, and what you have is, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So what happened? How do we go from naked and unashamed, innocence and bliss before God, six verses, six verses into Genesis chapter 3, and then in verse 7, it's gone. And they see their guilt and they see their shame, and now they are no longer unashamed, but they are ashamed before their Creator and they cover themselves. What happened in these six verses? And this is, this is of great importance, okay? Let's, let's just read verses 1 through 7, okay? Genesis 3, read it with me. Get your eyes on the page. Verse 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All right, so let's... Let's talk a minute about the setting, okay? The, the setting to this, we've already talked about this some of the last two weeks, is found in Genesis chapter 2, okay? So let's kind of talk about the, the scene. Set the scene for what just happened, what we just read about. Let's just kind of set the scene here, okay? Think about it. God has created man and woman, set them, set them in the midst of this absolutely beautiful, amazing garden paradise. He set them there. And there He not only has given them breath and life and happiness and everything that's pleasant to the eyes and everything that's delightful to the taste. Not only has He given them uh, dominion over all the earth and a glorious marriage relationship. He's given them all this. And not only that, He's given them His presence. And He walks with them in this place. The presence of God is found here. And in the presence of God, we know His fullness of joy and at His right hand, pleasures forevermore. So I want you to think about it. The setting is God has poured out unthinkable goodness on Adam and Eve as, they, as He creates them, breathes life into them and puts them in this place and walks with them. Unthinkable goodness has been poured out. He's expressing the deep, deep love. We hear about the love of God before time began. He's expressing this deep, deep love toward them as we see what He did for them at the Garden of Eden. He held nothing back from them. Of all the trees you may freely eat, He held nothing back except one little exception. One little exception. I want you to listen carefully because this one little exception is what Satan's going to come in and cunningly go after twisting this truth. Okay, listen to it. This is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. One little exception. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Listen, that's the loving liberality of God. Of every tree you can freely eat. One little restriction. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We even see the love of God as He urgently and sternly warns them. Don't eat of this tree. You'll die. It's bad for you. Don't eat of this tree. You will surely die. Now, this is the goodness of God. So the scene is the goodness of God poured out, right? Even in that little exception, even in that little, you, you can freely eat of all things, but this one little exception, don't eat of this tree. Even that little exception is the goodness of God poured out. And here's what I mean. That tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a mistake. It wasn't an accident. God didn't create everything good and then accidentally create one thing bad. It's all good. It says very good at the end of Genesis 1. So this tree is created very good and for the glory of God and for the goodness of man. Now how does that tree glorify God? That tree has the unique ability. You think about it. All of the rest of creation says that God is good. God is gracious. God is powerful. And this, this tree has a unique ability in a more clear way to say something glorious about God. It says that our God is in authority. Our God is supreme. You must obey this supreme authoritative God. Okay, so this tree does it. Now how is it good for us? How is this tree good for us? Because God created us in a certain way. And when we function in the way God has created us, we are most happy and most satisfied when we function that way. Well, here's one way He's created us. He's created us to be under His authority and to worship Him as supreme and the one to be obeyed. 
And so he offers up this tree as a chance that we would obey the living God and our happiness would increase and increase and increase again and again and again as we obey our Savior. This tree has potential to bring great goodness to man. So this is what Genesis 2 is telling us. God has poured out unimaginable goodness even in that one little exception that you can't eat of this tree, okay? So here's what I want to do. If you think about, if you think about the goodness that's been poured out, just like I spoke of a couple weeks back, the goodness of God that's been poured out on Adam and Eve, then it makes it even more despicable to think about what they did, what we just read about in Genesis 3, when they turned from their Creator, when they rebelled against their Creator. So here, here's, let, let's read verse 25 one more time. Look at 225. Let's just look at it. This is where it leads us, okay? This is the setup, chapter 2, verse 25. The setup for the fall that's coming. That's why he's saying it. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and not ashamed. So here's what I want to do. Before we break into this despicable thing that happened where man turned against God, before we break into that, I want to, I want to talk about this theme. There's a theme running through our passage of nakedness and unashamed. Or nakedness and very ashamed. What's this all about? Okay, we see it in chapter 2, verse 25. We see it in chapter 3, verse 7. We see it as we keep reading through Genesis chapter 3. What is this nakedness and unashamed that they have here? Okay, so let's talk about the theme for just a second. Naked and unashamed. Or naked and ashamed. First thing I want to say is this, okay? It would be a, a mistake if you thought this is only a physical, there's only a physical aspect to this. Does that make sense? As in, they were naked and they were not ashamed, as in they were not ashamed before each other because of their physical bodies. If you're only thinking in the physical realm, they were not ashamed of their physical bodies, you would be absolutely wrong, okay? Here's what I want you to see. The nakedness that it speaks about in 225 is, is real and is physical, no doubt. No doubt. And the coverings that they put on in verse 7, when they covered themselves, that's real fig leaf coverings, no doubt. They made lawn claws for themselves. It's real and it's physical. But it's deeper than that. And I want you to see that the, this theme of nakedness and unashamed goes deeper than just the physical realm. Okay, And here's why I say this, and I'll give you three reasons. One is this. If you think about it, unashamed means what? They're unashamed before God means they had no shame. It means they had no feelings of guilt. It means they had no fear of exposure. It means they had no reason to hide themselves. No reason to cover themselves. But this, this unashamed... No reason to hide themselves. No feelings of guilt. It's not just because they're physical bodies. And we know that. And how do we know that? How do we know that? Because, because of this. If you read Genesis 3.8, it says, they hid themselves from who? And I'm going to read it real quick with you. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So here's what I want you to see. They're naked and unashamed. Well, what made them ashamed? They rebelled against God. And then what, who do they hide from? They don't hide from each other. They hide from the living God. This is a vertical thing here. Naked and unashamed. We're talking about something vertical between man and God. They were naked and unashamed before God. No reason to feel guilty before God until they turned from Him. It's God that they hid from. Okay, second reason I want you to think through there's a deeper thing going on here naked and unashamed is this what was it that made them naked and unashamed what was it made that made them naked and ashamed what did that sin it wasn't a mirror they didn't see a mirror and become ashamed of their physical stature their physical bodies that was not wasn't the case it was sin that entered in and if you if you look at verse 7 with me then the eyes of both of them were open there's something deeper going on. They weren't blind. God didn't create them blind. They had eyes. They could see what the other person looked like. They knew what they looked like themselves. But this is something deeper. The eyes were open. Why? Because it's sin. It's a sin problem before God. Here's the picture. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are naked 
and open. Listen to it. All things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the picture. They were naked and unashamed before God. There's a, there's, yes, there's a physical nakedness, but there's a spiritual nakedness here. Well, they stand bare before God. Wide open before God. And at this point in chapter 2, they are unashamed. No reason to feel guilt. No sin. But once they sin against God, they stand before God. And they feel great shame and great guilt. Third reason I want you to see there's something deeper here. Okay, Third reason. Nakedness and shame. Unashamed. Why is there a deeper meaning than just physical stuff? And here it is. After they sinned, what did they immediately do? Cover themselves, right? They fixed the problem of the physical nakedness. They fixed that. They covered their physical nakedness. They, they did that. They fixed the problem. But did it solve the problem? No, because you read in the next verse and God shows up. Why didn't they just walk up to Him? And instead, they still hide themselves from this God. Because what that's showing you is it's not a physical problem. The real problem was deeper than that. And so they still, although they had covered the fit, they fixed the physical problem, they still felt a spiritual nakedness before this God. And there was shame and guilt because of their sin. And so I want you to see that this is it's deeper. It's deeper than just physical Nakedness. So if you think about that, okay, so that makes you want to do what? It makes you say, okay, well, what in the world took these people from naked and unashamed to naked before God, open, laid bare before God, and ashamed and full of guilt? And we see the horrendous fall of man in the first six verses of Genesis, okay? Chapter 3. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. What we're going to see in verse 1 is an enemy. What happened? How did this happen? Well, we're going to see an enemy revealed in verse 1. An enemy revealed. Look at it. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now you don't get any explanation here. No introduction here as to who is this one called the serpent. Praise God that we can interpret Scripture with Scripture and go to other places in God's Word and we can open it up and we can say, who is this serpent? And I want to give you a few verses on that. They should be there on your study guide. Revelation chapter 12, listen to verse 9. So the, so the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old. You hear it? Who is this one who came? That serpent of old called the devil... And Satan, it's the one we call Satan. It means adversary. He's an enemy against God. It's the one we call the devil. It means slander. He slanders God. And we're about to see him do it in just a moment. And you need to beware because don't you know he still does that? That Satan still slanders God to this world and to you, to me. And so in Revelation 12, 9, it says, The devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He is a deceiver. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. We can read over in Ezekiel. I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 28. You can turn that with me if you, if you like. Ezekiel 28. I want you to see that he was created by God. According to Job 38, before the foundation of the earth. So you read back in Genesis 1. Okay, And you look right when the foundation of the earth was laid. It said just before that happened, God created innumerable amounts of angels. Because Job 38 says it's there right there, praising the living God as He lays the foundations of the earth. So you get all these angels, innumerable amounts of angels that worship the living God. And one of them is this one who rebelled. And He took many, many fallen angels with Him, which we call demons today. Verse 12, verse 11 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Listen to it. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Who's he talking about? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl and onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, the emerald with gold, all of it was yours. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. This one who has fallen and rebelled against God is a created one. God, is, God created this one. 
He's not a creator. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent like our God. He's a created one. The serpent in Genesis 3. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. This is an angel created by God. I established you. You were holy on the mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Iniquity was found in one. This one. Look at verse 17. What happened? Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And if you read over in Isaiah 14, same thing. And what we're seeing is what you call his sin is pride. And he lifts himself up and he tries to make himself into the place of God. Put himself into the place of God. His pride in this one rises up. And this is who, this is that, according to Revelation 12, 9, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. He's a deceiver. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And we're about to see it unleashed for the first time towards humans in Genesis chapter 3. The father of lies is going to open his mouth. We need to beware of him. His end is coming soon. I hope you know that. The end of Satan is coming soon. The end of that serpent of old is coming soon where he is going to be crushed under the heel of the Savior Christ Jesus forever. But until then, Revelation 12, 12, it says this. It says, He has come down to you having great wrath because He knows that His time is short. So beware. Beware. Genesis 3, 3, 1, we're still there. So if you're not there, you can flip back to Genesis 3.1. Here's what I want you to see. So first thing he does, the evil one, the deceiver, the liar, the father of lies, the first thing that he does here is he's going to attack God's design for headship. And this is interesting. And what I mean is the headship of God overall, the headship of man over woman, the headship of man and woman over all of creation, having dominion over creation. I want to see that he goes after it from the very beginning and he attacks this thing that God has set up. So what do you mean? It says right here in 3.1, And he said to the woman, And he said to the woman, He goes after the man's wife. What a deceiver. What a terrible thing to go after the man's wife. And he said, he said to the woman. So here's what I want you to see. If you read the creation account, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what you see is God set up an order that's glorious and beautiful and awesome. And if a man and a woman see it in the right way, they glorify God for it. And what He set up is male headship in the marriage relationship. He set that up. You see it in Genesis 1 and 2. And the way the headship works in Genesis 1 and 2 is God having ultimate authority. And man is under God. And a man's wife submits to her husband and all the rest of creation is under the dominion of man and woman. And notice what Satan does. He comes in and he completely turns that thing upside down. He comes and he's using a serpent. He's speaking through or using an animal of the rest of creation. And he makes it to where the animal is over the woman. He goes to the woman. And he speaks to the woman. I want you to think about this. The you, when he looks at them right here in our passage and he says, he says you. The word you is plural there. And if you read over in verse 6 and 7, it says her husband was with her. So the idea is you got Adam is there with Eve. He's looking as if he's pointing at both of them, but he's addressing the woman. It's exactly the opposite of what God does. After they sin and God comes back, He says, Adam, where are you? And He speaks singularly. Singular. You. Adam. And yet Satan does just the opposite here. And so what he's trying to do is flip this thing and make it animal and rest of creation, woman, man, and God is forgotten about. Here's, a, here's how uh, Kent Hughes said it. He said, the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. And this is the picture of him trying to flip this whole idea, this thing, this glorious of headship. And we know that he's done that. In our, especially, you think about in our culture, you just begin to talk about male headship and the marriage relationship, and people get tense. Why? He has slandered this thing again and again and again. So, so here's what we see. The attack 
a tax on male headship in a marriage relationship or a tax on God's supreme headship overall is not a new thing. That's not a new phenomenon. That's been going on since the very beginning. And the question you need to ask about, about an attack on male headship in marriage is why? Why would he do that? And the reason is because you know, like Dustin taught last week, that this points to a glorious relationship between Christ Jesus and his redeemed bride, the church. And Satan hates that illustration. He hates it. And so he goes after right here. He said to the woman, why did he go to the woman? He says to the woman, and then the ultimate headship of God. We're going to see Him continue to come after and, and, and tear at the ultimate headship of God throughout the rest of this passage. Okay, first we see the deceptive words, okay? Still in verse 1. Read with me His deceptive words. He says, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now you got to notice this. Listen to what He said. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? This is subtle twisting of God's Word right here. And I want you to see it, okay? Think about it. Here's what God actually said. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Except one little exception. Which is going to kill you. Don't eat that little exception, okay? That's what He said. And Satan comes and he puts this negative this negative twist on it. He says, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's actually true, right? But do you see the subtle negative twist on it? It's actually true. God did say you can't eat of every tree. But the way he said it was, you can eat of every tree in the garden all that you want. It's all yours. But this one little exception will kill you. Don't do that. And Satan comes and say, God said that you can't eat of every tree of the garden. Is that what he said? It'd be like a father. It'd be like me looking at Samuel and saying, son... Everything in the pantry is yours. All the desserts, everything you want, you can have it all, son. Except that one little thing right there, it will kill you. Don't eat that, son. And then one who hates me comes along and says, heard your daddy won't let you have everything in the pantry. You see the subtle, it's true, but it's a subtle twist on the character of God. And you need to see this. You, you know, I'm getting off course here, but you need to think through this. There's a way you're supposed to read the Word of God and you read it in details, and it's not even just about the details of the Word, but it's about what does it mean? What is the emotion behind it? Does this make sense? Like you read something, it's like if I'm writing something, I'll put an exclamation mark at the end. I mean something by that. And you read God's Word, and God has said with some, with some ump, every tree of the garden, you can freely eat. And He comes on and said, He takes away that emphasis. He puts a negative twist on it. Did God say you can't eat of every tree of the garden? Satan is a slanderer. And right now, in a very subtle way, in Genesis 3.1, he is slandering God to Eve. He's in Eve's ear while his passive husband sits by the side. Sits on the sidelines. We need to be aware of that. He is a slanderer. And you need to ask yourself that. Is he, is he uh, subtly working on you right now and slandering God to you? Is he doing that right now? What about husbands to your wife? Is he doing that to your wife? Is he slandering God to your wife? Or what about to your children? Is he slandering God to your children? And all those questions ought to cause you to rise up and say, I want to go to war about the truth of God in, the ears, in my own ears and in the ears of those around me. He's a slanderer. We get to verse 2 and 3. I want you to see the woman's, Eve's, unsatisfactory response. That's the biggest understatement. Unsatisfactory. Listen to it. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now here's why her response is unsatisfactory. She, takes, she does three things. She takes away from God's Word. She adds to God's Word. And she softens God's Word. She adds to it. She takes, it, takes away, adds to it, and softens God's Word. Here's what I mean. She takes away from God's Word. And this is what I mean. God said, of every, you may freely. And yet she leaves that out. She says, we can eat of the trees that are in the midst of the garden. And we can eat of the trees in the garden. She takes away from it. God said, of every tree you can freely eat. And she takes away and she says, you can, we, we can eat of the trees 
that are in the garden. It makes, it makes God seem less liberal in His dispersion of grace and goodness that He poured out. It makes Him seem that way in her response. Or what about adding to God's Word? She added this. If you, we just read it. She added, nor shall you touch it. God didn't say that. But she adds to it. Nor God has said we can eat the trees, but, but this tree we can't eat, nor shall we touch it. She added that. And it makes God seem more harsh, almost as if you just trip and fail and touch a tree, I'm going to kill you. You get what I'm saying? Like this, this, this is it's messing with the character of God because she's, she's, not being, she's being too loose with God's Word right here. Third thing, she softens God's Word. She blunts the sharpness of the warning. The warning that God gave was, if you eat of it, you will surely die. And she says, lest you die. Lest you die. She softens God's Word. Unsatisfactory response. So what happens here is the mishandling of God's Word that she walks into is the perfect setup for her rebellion. Okay? Very subtle slander against God has already gone down. It's rocked back on her heels. She begins to deal loosely with God's Word and she is, she's a prime prospect now to latch on to the lie that's coming. And to rebel against God. We need to beware of that. Next, next verse, verse 4 and 5, the slanderous lie. Let's look at this slanderous lie. This is the lie. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What we see here, it's just a flagrant lie, a twist of God's Word, and we see a slander against the character of God. Okay, Here's the lie. He says, you will not surely die. It's just a lie. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. And He says, you will not surely die. Just a flat out lie. And what makes this such a dangerous lie is if you read the next verse, it's mixed with truth. You will not die for God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That's actually true. And you know the most dangerous lies are those lies that are mixed with truth, right? It's the, it's the ones that get the most people. And so that's what you have here. It's a dangerous lie. It's mixed with a little bit of truth, but it's twisted. The, the next thing, so there you got the blatant lie, and you also have the twist in it, okay? The twist is this. In verse 5, he says, his, his words are, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Here's the twist. That's true, but he's saying it like it's a good thing. But you read over in verse 22, 322. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, that's what Satan said, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, so here's my point. God says that that is, that is the true thing, but God's speaking about it as a bad thing. Satan's twisting this thing as if it's good. God knows that when this happens, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then you got the slander. The slander. So he's straight up lied. He's twisted God's word. And then the slander, he says, for God knows. For God knows in verse 5. God, God knows. God's keeping something back from you. He's withholding something good for you. And God knows it. And He's just, he's just keeping it from you. He's just being stingy with these good things. And, and, and listen, this is what the Bible says about God. It says, no good thing shall He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing shall He withhold from those who walk uprightly. But right here we have Satan in Eve's ear. And he's saying, he's not really protecting you. He doesn't really intend good for you. He doesn't really love you. He's actually trying to drag you down. He's trying to do you bad. He's withholding things from you. That's what he's trying to pull across. That's what he's trying to pull on her. Excuse me, deceive her. So here's where we're at. Satan's already cast his seed of doubt. The first verse we see it. Rocked her back on her heels. She mishandles God's Word. He throws out a flagrant lie. A twist of God's Word. A slander against the character of God. And now she's a prime prospect to latch on to this lie and rebel against God. Next section, verse 6. This is, this is where it happens. The man and woman are going to rebel against God. Right here in chapter 3, verse 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So what you have here is God said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the trees in the midst of the garden you shall not eat. And the day you eat of it you shall die. And they reach out their hand for that thing that God, one, one restriction for the glory of God. And they reach out their hand to the dishonor of God. And they grab hold of that thing which He said don't grab. They disobey God. I want you to remember something. Remember that the reason why this tree is here is for the glory of God. This tree, I've already told you this, it uniquely, like the rest of creation can't do, says about God, He is in authority. He is supreme. He's to be trusted. He's to be obeyed. And so by grabbing hold of that tree, by grabbing hold of that fruit and putting it to their mouth, they are saying, He is not in authority. I'm my own authority. He's not to be obeyed. He's not to be trusted. And that's what they say about God. When they reach out for that fruit, they're reaching out for autonomy from God. Independence from God. I don't have to obey Him. The one thing He told me to do, I don't have to obey Him. I'm reaching out. I'm my own God. I'm independent from Him. It's like in Psalm 2. Remember that? It says all the nations, they were saying, let's cast off God's bonds from us. Let's break His chains from us. And that's exactly what they do right here. They want independence from God. They fall to the exact same temptation that every single one of us fall to. That temptation that says, you can be your own God. You can be your own authority. You remember what Satan said to him, right? He said, it's not, it's not true. You're not going to die. What's going to happen is your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. You can be your own God, Satan says. And people give to that. We all give to that again and again. I want you to notice something. In chapter 3, verse 6, notice the temptations. The temptations it lists. There's three temptations it lists in verse 6. Okay? And what I want you to notice is that those temptations are the same temptations that are mentioned over that, that really important verse in 1 John 2.16. Listen to 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, it's a big verse, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's exactly what we see go down in chapter 3, verse 6. She saw that the tree was what? Good for food. The lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And she saw it was desirable to make one wise. The pride of life. These temptations are the same. And so, just like that. Eve is deceived by Satan. She rebels against the Creator who has poured out unthinkable goodness and love toward her. And Adam, Adam's there with her. 1 Timothy 2.14 says he wasn't even deceived. His seems even worse. Just pure evil against God. Pure rebellion against God. Not even deceived according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And he reaches out in the same way for autonomy from God. And he rebels against the Creator who loves him. And so now we have Adam and Eve both at the end of verse 6. Adam and Eve both, fallen creatures. Rebels against God. Insurrectionists. Separate from God and destined for destruction. This is Adam and Eve at the end of verse 6. Verse 7 tells us that they know something's terribly wrong. They know something is terribly wrong after this goes down. And we know it from verse 7. Look at it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked. And, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So now they know that they are completely exposed. And not just physically, right? But they are completely exposed, laid bare before God. Only now they're not unashamed, but they are full of shame, full of guilt. And they see a need to hide themselves from the presence of God. And so they do that. They hide themselves. And I want you to see that this, this just like I spoke earlier, this man-made, think of it, man-made fleshly attempt to try to cover up something and it doesn't work. 
I'm going to try to cover myself. I feel the shame and this guilt that's come upon me. And I'm going to try to cover it up physically. But it doesn't work because when God shows up in verse 8, they still hide themselves. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's the real problem. The reason why these fig leaves don't work is because they don't address the real problem. The real problem is they are naked before God and they have sinned before this God and nothing in the physical realm can solve it. the problem. No coverings in the physical realm can solve the problem. Adam and Eve have experienced that thing that was talked about by God in Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17, remember He said, of every tree you can eat except this tree, and in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And now here they are. They have experienced the life of God, but now they've fallen in this death for them. It's death for them. And here's what I mean by this death. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Think about it. You, you, let's say we're the Ephesian church and we get this letter from Paul. Okay? We've got people of all different ages in here. Okay? We've, been, we've been alive for different amounts of years. And we get this letter and it says, you who were dead. And we go, huh? I got skin, face, and eyes. What's he mean dead? I'm not de- I've never been dead. And he says, you who are dead, he is made Alive. This is the death we're talking about. They, they had experienced the life of God and now they have spiritually died before this God. This is a horrific fall. They're separated from the life of God. And this is a sad, sad section of Scripture. Unless you know good news. All right, let, me, let me say this first, okay? How does what we just read, we just read about the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of man. We just read about them going from naked and unashamed and innocent before God, sinless and guiltless, to guilty sinners, rebels against God. We just read that transition. How does that connect with us? How does that connect with all of mankind? How does it affect us now, me and you, and all of the human race? How does it affect it? I want to give you three ways, three ways that the fall of Adam and Eve connects with us, okay? Way number one is this. We are all born in Adam. We are born into this world and we're what, we're, we're, we're what they call in Adam. And this means his sin is our sin. His rebellion is our rebellion. His guilt is our guilt. His, his deserving of punishment is our deserving of punishment because we are in Adam. Adam. You say, where do you get that from? You can see this. You can see this as you read Genesis 1 through 4. We're going to see that over the next several weeks where you can actually see this. That's what he's laying out as we get the story about their children and how all of a sudden they begin, that one murders the other and they rebel against God themselves. We see it. But let me give you a really clear place in Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 12 says this. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Who's that talking about? Adam, right? Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. You see it? It's connected to us. It's like sin and death are passed down like a disease because Adam is our representative head. And it connects to us. Another verse, Romans 5.15, a little bit, you know, moving up a little bit in the, in the chapter. By one man's offense, many died. By one man's offense, many died. You hear it? It's connected to us. We're in Adam. 5.18 Through one man's offense, one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation. One more. Verse 19 By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So the reality is what we just read about in Genesis 3, what we just talked through in Genesis 3 is the most catastrophic event that has ever hit planet Earth. Ever. The whole human race just got plunged into sin and rebellion against God. You were born that way. And this is the reason. We, if, you just, if you just take time to get quiet for a moment and ponder things, 
you know that this is true. The doctrine, they call it the doctrine of original sin. This is, you know that this is true. You know that there's something messed up about this world. If you just take a second and think about the brokenness and the pain and the destruction that's all around you. And you know that this is true. It's called original sin. Here's, here's something I want to say to you about this doctrine. Okay, how we, all, the man, all mankind, is connected to the fall of Adam and Eve. Okay, Here's what this doctrine is not meant to do to you. I'm going to tell you what it's not meant to do to you, okay? This doctrine is not, it's not meant to be applied to yourself in such a way that you say, well, it ain't my fault. It's not my fault. Adam did it. It's not meant to apply to you that way. It's not meant to, for you to say, well, I can't, I can't help it. I didn't, he, he did it. I can't help it. Okay, it's not meant to apply. Many people, especially in the South, I'd say, do, like they do it with Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what they mean by that is, I'm fine because everybody's done it. But that's not the point of that passage, not the point of that verse. So, so what, what does the, the doctrine of original sin, what is it supposed to do to you? It's supposed to show you something horrific about yourself. Absolutely horrific. And it shows you that about yourself. And here's what I mean. Have you personally disobey the commands of God? Absolutely you have. How many times have you personally disobeyed the commands of God? More than you can count. But the doctrine of original sin shows you that your problem is deeper than that. You are not an overall good person who just, who just slipped up a few times. That's not you. The doctrine of original sin shows you that by nature, Ephesians 2 says, by nature, you're a child of wrath. That at the very core of who you are, you are a sinner before this God. And what this does to you, it shows you that the problem, the problem to be fixed in you is beyond what you can imagine. How can a man be saved? Because the problem is not just taking a good, an overall good person and, and fixing some of their slip-ups. Well, they messed up a few times. The problem, you actually have to become a new creature, a new creation, because at the core of who you are, you are rebels against God. Because you're in Adam by nature. That's the first way the fall of Adam and Eve connects to us. Okay? Second way is this. We all feel the shame and the guilt that fell on Adam and Eve that day. Maybe some of you found ways to cover it up and to be numb to it for a time. But every single one of us and every single person has experienced this thing of guilt and shame. And I know something's not right about me. And that's why you begin to cover yourself. Like the fig leaves, you begin to cover yourself. Which brings me to my third way it connects to us. Okay? Every single one of us tries to cover ourselves, cover up the guilt, cover up the shame, cover up the sin with stupid man-made ways to do it that do not work. And we try to do it, we try to cover it up in ways and it just doesn't work. And we're going to find out one day when we come into the presence of God, if you keep clinging to those man-made fleshly ways where you try to cover up your sin and guilt, you're going to find out in the presence of God one day that it didn't work and the guilt is still there. I just think about this. I mean, I heard a guy say uh, sin makes you dumb. And the reason why he said sin makes you dumb is because when Adam sinned, he began to hide himself from the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Just dumb, right? But here's what I want to tell you. That same thing is going to happen again one day. And if you're caught covering yourself in man-made fleshly ways, your way to try to hide your guilt, your way to try to hide your sin, if you get found that way, it's going to be stripped out from you. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, we see that. We see people that showed up on the day of judgment and they found out that their own coverings did not work. Listen to it. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commander, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. You see all these people? All these people. And what do they do? The same thing Adam and Eve did. They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand. 
If you're caught this way, covering yourself, you too will try to hide. And it'll be just as dumb as Adam and Eve trying to hide. You can't hide from the living God. So what are some of these things? I want to talk about it for a minute. What are some of these fig leaves that you put on? What are some of these ways that we as humans try to cover up the sin and cover up the guilt? What are ways that we do it? I'm going to give you three ways here. We try to cover our guilt by denial. We cover our shame by denial. We say, oh, there's no God that I have to give an account to one day. And listen to me. If that's you, and you say, there's no God I'm going to have to give an account to one day. One second into eternity, your guilt will come flooding on you again. And you'll realize that this covering of denial did not work before that God. So wake up. Wake up to it now, if that's you. Second is this. People try to cover their guilt by distraction. By distraction. Just, just don't think about God. That's the key. Keep Him off your mind. That's the key. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. God, just don't think about God. He's in none of his thoughts. Just be distracted from this God. And people distract, them, distract themselves with a whole variety of things. Maybe you numb your, yourself to the guilt and you try to make yourself feel better by pouring yourself into success and money making. Or maybe you numb yourself and try to hide the guilt by pouring yourself into whatever. To your own hobbies and your own comfort. There's drugs and alcohol. What are you doing? How do you cover it up and try to numb yourself to the guilt and to the shame that's there because you sinned against God? One second into eternity, that fig leaf will be ripped off and you'll stand bare before this God. These men in Revelation 6, they experienced it. Third way is this, and this is the most dangerous. So if you're here and this describes you, this is the most dangerous. You are the least likely to get out of it. Out of all that I just said, you are the, if, you, if you fit into what I'm about to say, you are the least likely person to get out of this trap. And what it is, is covering your guilt and your shame by your own righteous deeds. Covering your guilt and your shame by your own righteous works. Here's the idea. You know that you're guilty before God. You know it. And you know your sin before God. And you know that you deserve the righteous and holy judgment and eternal punishment from this God. And so what do you do? You react like Adam and Eve and you begin to cover yourself with the strength of your own arms and your own ideas. And you start covering yourself. This is your labor for God. You're reading the Bible. You go into church. You striving to be a good person, to be upstanding citizen. It's you doing these things and dependent on your own works. It's your fig leaves. And what you don't realize is when you show up on the day of judgment, those, those fig leaves, that covering will be ripped out one second into eternity. And it's going to be ripped off of you. And you're going to realize in that moment that I'm bare and naked before God and I'm greatly ashamed. And you'll stand under His judgment. This is what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. It says, We are all like an unclean thing. All of us. And all our righteous deeds. Why would anybody do that? They're trying to fix the unclean thing. They're trying to become clean. I don't want to be unclean and go to hell. I want to be clean. How do I do it? All your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It won't work. It didn't work for Adam and Eve. They covered themselves and still had to hide from the presence of God. So apparently, we need, we need something more than our fig leaves. Apparently, we need... Something greater to come and save us and deliver us from sin. Apparently, that's what we need. Now, that's the end of the passage, right? So I could just leave you hanging there. But I don't want to get left hanging there. I want to make some application that kind of turns the corner, okay? So primary application is this. I want to encourage you, and you might ask me how, and I want to answer how. But primary application is this. Worship King Jesus. Worship Jesus. That is my primary application to you from what we just read and walked through in these seven verses. Worship Jesus. You say, how? How does this section of Scripture lead you to worship Jesus? Let me show you that by showing you something amazing in Luke chapter 3. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. 
All right, as you're flipping there, I want you to remember something, okay? You got to plug this in the memory, okay? Remember that Adam fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. He fell into sin. Remember that they fell to the temptations of Satan. Remember that they fell to those temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Remember these things. Remember that they became disobedient. They rebelled against God. Remember that this plunged the whole human race into sin and destruction. You got it on the memory? So if you think about that, everything I just said, so what do we need then? What do we need? Adam was the representative. And so we're plunged into sin and death because Adam's our representative. We need another representative. We need someone else. We need another one to come and dominate Satan. We need one to come and dominate those temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need another to come and stand as our perfect representative so that we can be saved. Which is where we come to Luke chapter 3. Because you think about it, you're reading the Bible, and you're thinking, who's it going to be? Maybe nobody. But who's it going to be? Is it Noah? No, Noah got hammered. Not going to be him. Is it Abraham? No, not Abraham. He's, he's screwing up too. Is it going to be Jacob? I heard a, a brother, I don't know if he'll say this in his testimony. He may, may or may not. But Ravi talking about reading in his testimony, excuse me, reading in the Bible, as he was telling me his testimony, he said he's reading through the Bible and he gets to Jacob and he sees all the sin of Jacob. And in his brain he went, I thought this was holy Bible. This man's not holy. And it rocked him. He's thinking, why is this sin here? And here's what I'm getting. And, and he, he figured that out. And it's awesome. You'll hear about it in a minute. But, but here's what I'm saying. All through the Bible, these sinful creatures, sin, even you just take that, that people call it the, the, the hall of faith in the Hebrews 11. Go look at all those men in there. Every one of them, wretched sinners against God. Every single one of them. So who is going to come and be the representative? Who's going to do these things? Luke chapter 3. Verse 21, it says this. Jesus shows up on the scene and right at the beginning of His ministry. This is very important. I mean, Mark starts here. Okay? The Gospel of Mark starts where I'm about to read. Verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while He prayed, think about it, heaven was open. The sky ripped apart. Heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven. That's right. God spoke audibly. He said, You are my beloved Son. and you I am well pleased. There's the one. John the Baptist knew it. All those people knew it. They said, that's the one. That's the representative right there. Adam's our representative. We're in Adam. And so all of us have fallen to the temptation of Satan. All of us have fallen to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We have rebelled against God. But there's one who's a representative. And look what happens in Luke 3. This is awesome. This massive moment just happened where God split the sky open, opened His mouth and said, that's my son. And so what you're expecting next is like, man, keep the story going. And what happens next? A genealogy. <laughs> you, get, you get like 10 verses of genealogy. Je, you know, Jesus' father was, and so-and-so's father was, and so-and-so's father was, and so-and-so's father was. And it takes you all the way to who? Adam, the first one. And what does it call Adam? Son of God. You got two Son of Gods represented here. Two of them. You got the first one, Son of God. And this fits with 1 Corinthians 15, right? Where it talks about Adam and the last Adam. Calls Jesus the last Adam. Alright, so here you got two sons of God. Adam and the last Adam. And you got the Son of God, Adam. And he just said, that's my son. Okay, genealogy, genealogy. Here's that Son of God, Adam. And then what happens next in the story? Next part of the story. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Here's what happens. Just like Adam was tested by the devil, he's, Jesus is about to step in as that representative and he's about to go to war with that tempter that tempted Adam. And he's about to be tempted with the same temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three temptations are mentioned here. If you're really the Son of God, turn that rocket to a stone. Excuse me, turn that rocket to bread. Lust of the flesh. And Jesus defeats it and dominates Satan. 
Hey, if, 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 uh, if look at all these kingdoms, look, Jesus, look at all these kingdoms in the earth. They can be yours because I'll give them to you. The lust of the eyes. And Jesus dominates that temptation and defeats the devil. Third temptation, just jump off the pinnacle and you'll be fine. Angels will get you if you're really the son of God. The pride of life. And Jesus defeats that temptation and dominates the devil. And he stands there as the sinless Savior. There's the representative right there. That's the point of Luke chapter 4, is that Jesus is the sinless one. He's the righteous one. He's the one that came. Adam fell, but Christ lives forever as the sinless, righteous Savior of all. That's glorious, right? Hebrews 4.15 says this, In all points, He was tempted as we are, yet with out sin. And since the same sinless Savior, think about it, since the same sinless Savior went to the cross, crucified for our sins, took our wrath at the cross, took our death, we're in Adam and we have this sin because we're in Adam and He takes it onto Himself as if He did it. And He rises from the grave. He ascends on high after he, 40 days after He rises from the grave. And He's seated right now as King of Kings, as our representative, the representative that we can look to. And so because of that, we got a choice to make. we got a choice to make. You can remain in Adam. You can just remain in Adam. You're born in Adam. You can remain in Adam. And you stay in Adam and you come before God one day and you are guilty. You rebelled. You fell to Satan and you rebelled against God Almighty. Or you could turn to Jesus Christ, the representative. And he says, everybody that puts their faith in him says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we turn to Christ Jesus, His sinlessness, His innocence, His righteousness is laid upon us. It's as if we would stand before God one day and we know that we're sinners, but it's as if we stand before God one day and it looks as if we're the ones who dominated Satan. We're the ones who defeated His temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you can stand before God that way. Jude 24 Jude 24 says it like this, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and listen, and to present you faultless, faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. So I'll tell you again, primary application, worship Jesus Christ. Worship Jesus. He's the last Adam, the sinless Savior, the only one who has power to wipe out your original sin, the only one who has power to remove you from Adam and place you in Christ Jesus. And you can be in Him. Worship Jesus. Last thing I'll say here. So the primary takeaway, worship Jesus. Let me give you a short secondary takeaway, okay? Secondary takeaway. I want you to realize that Satan is a deceiver and he has armies of angels, fallen angels that fell with him as demons now, unclean spirits. And, and he is a deceiver. And you're to go to war against this. You're to battle and fight. That's who you are. Ephesians 6.12. It says you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So my secondary application to you it's secondary not because it's not important. It's secondary because it's not necessarily the main point of what we're saying. But, but I do want you to see this. You must go to war against Satan and his. You must go to war. And so the question is, how do you prepare for that? Because you need to prepare for war. We need to prepare for battle, for war. Well, how do we prepare for war? Well, let me put those same two examples before you. Same two examples. What did Eve do and what did Jesus do? You see, Eve, she's dealing loosely with the Word of God as she takes away from God's Word, as she adds to God's Word, and as she softens God's Word. Don't go that way. But you had this other example, Jesus. And if you're still there in Luke 4, what does He keep saying? Satan tempts Him, and what does He say in verse 4? But Jesus answered saying, It is written. He quotes Scripture. Verse 8, Jesus answered said to Him, Get behind Me, Satan, for it is written. He quotes Deuteronomy. 
You see it again in verse 12. And Jesus answered, said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He quotes the scripture. And so what I'm saying is this is the example you want to go after. This, it is written. I cling to the word of God. I don't deal loosely with the word of God like he, but I want to deal, I want to deal tightly and effectively and faithfully with God's word like we see our Savior Christ. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is go to war against sin and the devil. How? Know the Word of God. Know the Word of God well. Rightly divide the Word of God. Hide the Word of God in your heart. You can't get away from this. Hide the Word of God in your heart. Speak the Word of God to yourself and to others. Do not neglect the Word of God. How arrogant is the man? Who says, I'll fight Satan and temptation and sin some other way other than the way Christ did. How arrogant is that man? I can't tell you how many brothers... I, I say this secondary application because I can't tell you how many times I've talked to my brothers and sisters okay, who were dealing with heavy temptation in a moment. Don't you think that can happen? Temptation can come stronger sometimes than others. And they're dealing with this temptation. And they're falling into this sin. And I'm asking them, brother, what are you fighting with? What are you going to war with? And they've got next to nothing. And so that concerns me. And I say, don't have next to nothing. Go to war with the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11 says this, Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't get caught unprepared in war. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that you are, you are our representative. That You laid down Your life. That You took our sin. That You give us Your righteousness, Lord. Thank You so much. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't have that, they've not turned to You, Lord, and they don't have Your righteousness on them, clothed in robes of righteousness, God, God, open their eyes. By the power of Your Spirit, open their eyes. God, I pray, pray against the work of the enemy. God, I pray that all the enemy's lies and deception that's even in minds and people's minds right now, God, I pray that You deal with it, Lord. Expose him. Expose the work of the enemy in our lives and in the lives, in the lives of our family, in lost people here and saved people here. Expose the work of the enemy, God. And if there's anyone here, God, who's not saved, I pray You'd save their soul. And for, the, and for my brothers and sisters here, God, that You would encourage them and build them up, Lord, that they stand in You, Lord Jesus, You're their representative. God, I pray You'd encourage their souls. And Lord, help us all to go to war against deceit and lies of the enemy. God, fill us with Your truth. Help us to hide Your Word in our heart. We might not sin against You. In Jesus' name, Amen.